This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This week, we embark on a seafaring adventure across oceans and through time to the ancient world of the Greeks to meet someone who some have said is the greatest poet to have ever lived by the name of Homer and his second epic, The Odyssey. Well, to be honest, I agree with that assessment. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty high praise. Uh, How does one get to that level? Well, uh, I guess one way of looking at it is by just attrition. I mean, how many poets do we still read from 3,000 years ago? That is not a very large club. We certainly don't have anyone in the English language canon that is competitive for that. Homer basically invented the coming-of-age novel with the Telemachi. He invented the flawed hero, as I choose to understand Odysseus. In many ways, his epics, although they are poems, are pre-runners to modern-day novels. They're precursors to fantasy. Heck, even the success of the Marvel movies, to me, suggests a thinly-veiled nod to Homer. I mean, what is Superman or Wonder Woman, if not demigods? True. Uh, You know, if I may weigh in, uh, although I don't feel even remotely qualified to suggest someone is the greatest poet to have ever lived, but what impresses me the most is really the level of psychological and uh, even archetypal insights into the nature of man that crosses throughout culture. And Of course, I've heard a lot of the characters and several of the stories, but I was impressed by how relatable Odysseus is. And although so many of his ad- adventures at sea are fantastical, I mean, they feel like hyperbolic expressions of what I would go through. For example, what is Scylla and Charybdis, if not being caught between a rock and a hard place? Exactly. Another thing that fascinates me is the order he wrote them in, at least the orders we think of them, uh, the first one, the Iliad, and then some years later, as an older man, the Odyssey. Uh, That's also psychologically interesting. The Iliad has its version 
of a hero, uh, Achilles, who's idealistic and he's proud and he's obviously self-righteous and vindictive even. Uh, it's a young man's idea of heroism versus the Odyssey. And really, its version of heroism, uh, it's much more nuanced. He also gets revenge, but it's slow and, you know, it's not very reactionary. He plots, he lies, he bides his time. You know, things we learn by life beating us around. <laughs> well, that's well said. Uh, studying Homer, for me, is also intimidating historically, if, if I want to be honest. There's so much history and culture beyond the language difference that uh, makes our world and Homer's world very different. I mean, it's 2,600 years, give or take. The language is completely different. The culture, it's not just cross-culturally. It's cross-culturally and cross-generationally. The geography, the religion, they're literally worlds away and I feel underconfident, you know, in, in thinking about the context of, of the work. And if that wasn't scary enough, you also have to realize, and these numbers to me are just so big, that what Homer was describing in these stories preceded him by another 400 to 1,000 years, depending on who you want to take, whose word you want to take. So, uh, I can get lost in that kind of math. I might as well be saying a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Hey, that's a great line. You should use that. <laughs> it would make a great movie. I think it would. <laughs> yeah. Bottom line, it's foreign. It's mysterious. You know, Lizzie was watching me on my computer researching uh, the Mycenaeans, and she looked at me and she said, what are you doing? And I said, Roy, it's research for Homer's The Odyssey, to which she replied, that sounds boring. <laughs> and she listens to our podcast, but on the screen of the computer, you know, there's broken pieces of pottery and there's archaeological data. I mean, this is not the stuff of Superman and Wonder Woman, at least not the way we think of it. No. Well, uh, you know, if you can't guilt trip your family members into listening to you, I mean, even if you are boring, <laughs> what hope do you have? Exactly. Right? But I totally understand where this is coming from. Um, over the years, I mean, I've taught a lot of history from U.S. to European to world and ancient world, and, and I love it. And I will admit, though, um, even though a lot can be fascinating with the agents, there's no doubt the farther back in time you go, it can be very difficult to really kind of uh, conceptualize. It's also a lot more guesswork. Ancient Greece feels far away because, you know, it is far away. <laughs> and often we don't know what we're looking at when we see it. And I hate to keep coming back to the arrogance of the present, but we really have to guard against looking at ancient peoples as primitive thinkers just because their technologies were not as advanced. I mean, honestly, which of us could survive one week on an island? I think Survivor's proven that's not happening. <laughs> I know those people always lose so much weight. Survivor also proves that it's the most cunning and the deceptive that wins Odysseus style. The more likely you are to survive if you do it that way. But getting back to the historical side of it, let's start with the Trojan War, which is really the beginning of all this. Did it or did it not happen? And what was it? Hmm, that's a great question. You know, for years, uh, even centuries, a lot of the great historical minds said no. If Troy existed, we would know it. And just for context, in case you are unfamiliar with the story, the story goes that there was a woman, today we call her Helen of Troy, 
but she wasn't Trojan. She was Greek. She ran away with a young lover named Paris to a city called Troy across the ocean. Her sister's husband, King Agamemnon, launched 1,000 ships and all the Greek kings and heroes to get her back for her husband, Menelaus. The war to get Helen back took 10 years before the Greeks were finally able to penetrate the wall, theoretically using the uh, gigantic horse. That was a gimmick devised by Odysseus, by the way. Uh, The story goes that Odysseus and a few others hid inside the gigantic horse. Everyone else hid and pretended to return to Greece. They left the horse there, claiming that it was a gift to the god Poseidon. The Trojans brought the horse inside the gate. Odysseus came out, unlocked the gate, and the Greeks sacked the city. Hence the expression, to beware of Greeks bearing gifts. Yes, and Trojan horses. <laughs> yeah. For Forever, no one thought this place even existed with any real certainty. Uh, we couldn't find it until an outrageous and bombastic but exceedingly wealthy amateur Self-proclaimed archaeologist by the name of Heinrich Schliemann set out to find it in the 1860s, and he actually did. Outrageous and bombastic. That sounds like you're trying to come up with a nice way to call him a schmuck. Uh, Well, I think you're right. (laughs) He did have a few personal issues as well as professional ones. For one thing, he wasn't trained in archaeology as an archaeologist. So he just went around blasting everything he saw to the point that historian um, Kenneth Harl has said that Schliemann's excavations did to Troy what the Greeks couldn't do, destroy and level the city walls to the ground. <laughs> Yikes, that is terrible. Well, it really is, and he destroyed a lot of history. And he wanted so badly to get to the jewels belonging to Helen of Troy that he actually blasted through the actual walls of the city. That's horrible. But, you know, but that being said, there is something to the fact that he actually found the walls of the city and was something no one had done before him. I mean, he found a lot of gold and all kinds of very important things, and he claimed his loot belonged to people like King Priam and Agamemnon, you know, including a very important, solid piece of gold. One of the most famous is still called the Mask of Agamemnon. You know, this, of course, has mostly been debunked by actual archaeologists, you know, trained ones (laughs) who know how to properly date archaeological finds. But that being said, he found stuff that's real and validated many of the events referenced by Homer, um, albeit in mythological form. And if you ever have the opportunity to visit Athens, you can see the Mask of Agamemnon in the National Archaeological Museum. And anyway... The best historical sources we have suggest that the Trojan War actually happened and took place around 1183 B.C. And uh, not everyone is willing to say it lasted 10 years or that it was fought on a scale that Homer describes with thousands of ships. But we now believe that it actually happened in some form. Well, I'm sure it's even less likely to believe that it was sparked by petty gods and goddesses and fought by demigods that were fathered by goddesses who dipped their child in a magical river that made him almost totally immortal. But I will say, I would have liked to have found the Mask of Helen, too. Huh. <laughs> I would love to see what does the most contested, beautiful woman in human history, daughter of Zeus, look like? <laughs> I know. I, I wonder about that, too. And it makes me wonder about the phrase, the face that launched a thousand ships. What was it? You're either gorgeous or hideous, one of the two, oh. if you can do that. So there is so much I don't know about all the myths of the gods and goddesses. And before I started researching for this podcast series, honestly, 
I thought the story of the Iliad was the story of the Greeks sacking Troy. I have to admit, I got my information from the movie Brad Pitt made called Troy. <laughs> there are so many gods and goddesses and furies and nymphs and creatures and shapeshifters. I mean, it's all very overwhelming. Well, true. It's an entire mythology. Uh, and the Iliad, just so you know, ends with the death and funeral of the Trojan hero Hector and his father very sadly begging for the son of his, I mean, the body of his son and returning uh, that home, not the sack of Troy. Uh, and at the end of the Iliad, the Greeks haven't won yet. That comes in other pieces of literature and uh, you get that from other places but the odyssey is not the continuation even of that story per se there's going to be a gap the odyssey references uh the trojan horse but not in the context of a single narrative it just talks about it as if people already knew it when telemachus goes to visit some of his dad's old war buddies and they reference you know the brad pitt movie Hmm. or what would soon one day become the Brad Pitt movie. Uh, I was disappointed to find that that wasn't in the Iliad myself when I read it. But the speaking of things that have proven disappointing about Homer, one of the main things that is disappointing about Homer is that we don't know anything about Homer. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, And it's controversial and not even totally accepted, so I'll have to say that from the get-go. But I actually am of the persuasion that Homer was a real person who actually wrote both pieces of literature. I'm sure that he got them from a collection of traditional myths, you know, like we saw with the Iroquois Confederacy, and those myths like um, uh, and the indigenous people had been trapped, passed down orally from generation to generation. But I believe there was actually a man named Homer who drew from those myths kind of in the way Shakespeare did for uh, the things that he wrote, popular stories of his day. Uh, And he composed his own pieces, uh, keeping the things that he liked and not including the things that he didn't like. And one of those was the Iliad. Uh, He doesn't tell the entire end of the war story. He focuses on one hero and really one aspect of the war, the other being the Odyssey. Again, he's focusing on one person. Now, Obviously, I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not a, a classical you know, linguist or university professor studying classical studies. So I'm not going to argue with anyone. And I'm sure there's other theories out there. Well, I know there are. And they're also very convincing. But I'm sticking with this Homer guy. Well, if, <laughs> if Heinrich Schliemann can be an archaeologist without being an archaeologist, yes. you, you can do all a of this. A classic linguist without being a classical linguist. Without being trained. <laughs> Yes. Uh, So do we know anything about Homer at all, assuming as you do that he existed? (laughs) Uh, No, not really. I mean, okay, if you follow the theory that he existed, um, most of the traditions claim that he was blind. But there's really no compelling reason to think that he's blind, except for the fact that in the Odyssey, there is a blind poet who sings at the court of the Fakian king, uh, which wouldn't mean anything at all to me, except that the ancients themselves thought that it meant something. So my thinking is, if they believed it, then maybe it was so. My favorite tradition, this will be no surprise to you, uh, is the one that suggests that Homer wasn't a man at all, but a woman. And this theory is based in large part on the prominence that Homer gives women in his story, something that you wouldn't expect 
uh, in this time period to happen at all. Unfortunately, although that's my favorite theory, you can't find an ancient scholar that will support that view. So tradition, and by tradition, I'm talking about you know a couple thousand years of, of tradition. Uh, people think that it is a male. It is a male bard. And what that is, is that Homer was a professional singer-songwriter. He was paid, and he would go from town to town uh, singing these songs. Nobody knows where he came from. There are at least seven different places that I found that claim that he's from there. Uh, most of them are different islands uh, there in Greece. Most of them are actually closer to Turkey than the mainland. Specifically, though, the best guess from most scholars is Caios, um, which is in the Aegean Sea. Uh, but there's a lot of people that think maybe Smyrna. Smyrna today is called um, Izmir. If you're not at all that well acquainted with the geography of the Mediterranean or the Aegean, let me try to lay out a mini map of the area in your mind's eye. If we think of the big Mediterranean Sea being like a giant lake, then we can think of um, the mainland of Greece kind of jetting out halfway in the middle of the lake b between Turkey on one side and Italy on the other side, on the western side, and we have all these little scattered islands in between. So the part of the water that is between Greece and Turkey, that's called the Aegean Sea. Now, I don't want to oversimplify for people who know their maps, but I've learned over the last couple of years that it's harder and harder for us to visualize maps as we get you know, used to GPS all the time. <laughs> as I have become. I know, the disrespect. I definitely love my GPS over a paper map, but... There's a trade-off. Sometimes if we don't use paper, we can't really visualize where things are in connection to other things. So, you know, that might make a good LinkedIn question. Do we need maps anymore? Anyway, ancient Troy, or modern-day history lake, is on the north side of this inlet. If you go down about 120 miles from Troy, you run into Caios uh, out in the water or Smyrna. And both of these places are about 158 miles across the water from Athens. So today, by modern standards, they really don't take long. These are not long stretches of space to get from one town to the other. But obviously, if you make the gods mad like Odysseus did, <laughs> it can take up to hmm. 10 years uh, to course. get from one place to the other. But Gary, beyond just the geography of Greece being different from other parts of the world, it's interesting that this part of the world centers around a culture of the sea. You know, I have trouble different understanding the different time periods of these people, but I know that they exist and they have names like the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and stuff like that. For those of us who don't know, is there a two-minute crash course on the 2,000 years of, of, of history of the region. <laughs> so let me get this straight. You want me to condense 2,000 years of history into two minutes? Is that possible? <laughs> yes, but not not to be done excellently. <laughs> anyway, sure. Uh, well, we usually call what you're talking about this age or the Greek glory years where they built the big palaces with the gigantic walls with the gods and the heroes that were larger than life, the the Mycenaean civilization, and the dates for that, generally speaking, are between you know 1650 to 1200 BC. We really don't think of the Mycenaeans as having a writing system like we think of today. They likely had some ways of using script 
perhaps, you know, to mark things for business. But the culture and stories were really passed down by an oral tradition. And the most important city-states, at least this is what we think today, were some of the ones we see in the Odyssey, for example. Mycenae was home to the legendary King Agamemnon, and Pylos was the home of King Nestor. All of these city-states worshipped the same gods, and they spoke the same language, but uh, politically they had different kings. Kings had to be strong. Piracy was a way of life and really not even considered immoral. And uh, we think today that these people were highly aggressive and warlike amongst themselves as well as against outsiders. They also made their armor out of bronze, hence the Bronze Age. So back to the Iliad, Helen, the most beautiful woman in the world, was the queen of Sparta. If we're referring back to your little mental map, Sparta, Mycenae, and Pylos are on the other side of mainland Greece, the side closer to Italy. Uh, The ruins from those cities show big walls and lots of wealth. Sparta is about 300 or so miles across the sea, past the mainland and into the Aegean Ocean. This would have been a war path to Troy, but honestly, we really don't know what happened. And that is not even just about this particular war. We don't know for sure what happened to any of these towns. And what we do know is something devastated all of these beautiful city-states. And they were burned to the ground. And whatever happened to cause this area to fall into a period called the Dark Age, because we know nothing about it. Really, almost the only thing we really know is that during the Dark Age, there was a transition from bronze weapons to, you know, much stronger iron ones. The big changes and the big cultural movement that shaped the world, at least the Western world, like we like to think of today, comes out of the next period, the one following the Dark Age. And we call this one the Archaic Period, which we consider to be from about, you know, 8 to 500 BC. And this era, as well as the next, are where we get things we're familiar with, like the Olympics and the new sophisticated writing system and the Greek alphabet and democracy and, you know, all those things that we associate with Athens. And to make things even more confusing, the big Greek guys that we think of, like Plato and Aristotle and the Golden Age, they don't coincide with Homer at all. They actually come much later. Um, So it's a lot of history for us on the American continent. We are mostly immigrants from other parts of the world, you know, like in Europe, Africa, or Asia. Uh, It's more than we can really even conceptualize. I mean, our entire nation, as we understand it, is a nation that's roughly 250 years old. And uh, if we add what we know of the indigenous people like the Iroquois Confederacy, if we add them into our timeline, we still fall short by thousands of years. Takatawea wasn't born until 1200 A.D., you know, and at least that's our best guess. So there's your historical context in a two-minute nutshell. Are you better off or worse off for having heard all that? (laughs) Well, uh, to summarize even more, Homer is a man who comes from this archaic period, 800th century B.C., and what you're saying is he was writing about people who he claimed lived during a a civilization, two civilizations before him, the Mycenaean civilization, 400 years before his time. So if we want to give Odysseus the man an age, he's what, 3,000 plus years old? Mm -hmm. (laughs) A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) it is again. Well, I want to start out by reading the first page of Fagel's translation of the Odyssey so we can jump right into the story itself. Because for me, and I don't want to be disrespectful um, of history, I love history, but I think 
you will agree with me that it's really not the historical context of this story that has kept it around for 3,000 years. It's not the religion in the story. It's not the culture in the story. Homer writes the story of our lives, all of our lives, it seems, because we keep coming back to it generation after generation after generation after generation. I could go on for 3,000 times. Oh, please don't. (laughs) There's got to be some reason. Gary, read for us the first paragraph of the Odyssey. Sing to me of the man, Muse, the man of twists and turns, driven time and again off course, once he had plundered the hallow heights of Troy. Many cities of men he saw and learned their minds, many pains he suffered, heart sick on the open sea, fighting to save his life and bring his comrades home. But he could not save them from disaster, hard as he strove, the recklessness of their own ways destroy them all. The blind fools, they devoured the cattle of the sun, and the sun god wiped from sight the day of their return. Launch out on his story, muse, daughter of Zeus. Start from where you will. Sing for our time, too. All right, Christy. I think there's one more thing I think we need to clarify. There are so many translations to this. Does it matter? (laughs) Well, I think the answer to that question is the same if you were asking that question about the Bible. And the answer is, well, whichever one you personally like. Uh, And I do want to add, if you want to compare when Odysseus lived with biblical characters that you may be familiar with, people like Moses, I think, uh, if I understand it correctly, Moses lived arguably about 200 years before Odysseus. That's my best guess from looking at the respected timelines for each of these guys. But I do stand to be corrected, and if you can shoot us an email. But the important point, and in some sense this is true for any text, but it's especially true for ancient texts. You don't read ancient texts for the nuance of the language, like you might T.S. Eliot or something like that. It's the essence of the stories that keeps these guys around, the ideas, the universal truths. I mean, most of the millions who will read the story this year aren't even going to read it in the original Greek at all. And although there are those that can talk about the beauty of the language and the meter and all that, for most of us, that's just going to be, to use a cliche, lost in translation. It's not the translation that's going to make or break the story. The Rouse translation, uh, which, by the way, is the one that we used when I taught this text to freshmen back in Wynn, Arkansas, was the first one that I ever read, and it was the only one that I knew about for a really long time. I really like it, actually, because I know it and I'm familiar with it. But the knock on that translation is that it's written in prose. And the Odyssey wasn't written in prose. Today, a lot of people prefer Robert Fagel's translation, which is the one that we're reading here, because his book is easy to read, but he tries to make it sound more like the poetry of the original text, as best as you can with an English translation. Well, for the record, uh, as a confession, I'm using Rouse's translation. <laughs> I picked up Fagel's, but I ended up preferring Rouse's because I wanted to read the story in prose instead of verse. You know, For me, that's easier. But just so I know, Christy, assuming we were Greek and could understand this as a rigid composed, what would it be like? Well, that's another good question. And again, how would we know? It's so long ago. 
But the general understanding is that it was written in meter, dactylic hexameter to be exact. A what? what? I know. Say it again. Dactyls. Dactyls are, is this, okay, it's a foot and it goes da, 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 da. So each meter has six of those. Da, 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 da. One accented syllable with two unaccented syllables in a row for each line. Now, this is just me. But when I think of how these ancient bards would have sounded to their people, I kind of think they would have sounded to their people maybe the way that modern-day rap artists sound to us. <laughs> Bear with me. Uh, the bards uh, would go around singing, chanting these stories. But as they did so, they would improvise. They would tell the stories, but they would have to use the beat to kind of keep them on the, on the course, on the musical course. It didn't sound like rap, but it's the same skill that we see rap artists doing when they improvise. And you have to wonder, how can they keep up with all of those different rhymes? Well, they're using tricks. And the trick is to have these little phrases in your mind that you know will always work, that will always help you with your beat, that will always end with the same rhyme. In the case of the Greek bards, they would have these epithets or phrases that they would use to describe the different names of the gods. And these lines, we see them repeating throughout. It helped them keep up with these demands of the meter, the ba ba, the da 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 da. So this is what that means. When you read these stories and you hear these expressions over and over again, like bright eyed Athena. It may not be necessarily because he's just so obsessed with the eyes, but he's adding syllables and beats to make the meter work. They did that all the time, if that makes sense. Well, it does. And and I'm going to tell you right now, when I start my rap career, <laughs> my stage name will be Dactylic Hexameter. Oh, or, or, or Bright-Eyed Athena. We'll try something no, like we're, that. we're going to stay with Hexameter and... Uh, you know, okay, so back to this. So the descriptions don't necessarily mean that her eyes are the most important thing about her. It's just to make the music work. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. The thinking is we aren't supposed to read too much into all these little different epithets. Also, the bards themselves used a very specialized vocabulary, which was a mixture of different dialects, Greek dialects, that they were pulling words from different places in order to make all this work. This is kind of a tangent, but it's interesting. There was a, a man one time, a classical linguist by the name of Milman Perry, who really got into this, and he wanted to figure out how in the world Homer can memorize so many lines. You know, the Odyssey, just the Odyssey, has 12,000 lines, and he had two of these epics. So Perry, he, he, one of the things that he did, among other things, but he studied modern-day illiterate singer-songwriters uh, from Bosnia, and he came to believe that Homer didn't memorize anything. He just had these patterns, these phrases and names of gods that he knew rhymed well, and he used them to fit the pattern. And then he would tell his story around this, improvising the language so he could change it up for each individual audience. He'd end the lines with phrases and the patterns, but in the stories are generally the same, but he had a lot more freedom. Somehow, I think maybe in that regard, it was like the professional comedians who do, you know, these improvs like we see in Whose Line Is It Anyway? So, you know, for me, the way for me to understand it, a Greek bard is a cross between a rap artist and a mo modern day improv, improv comedian. <laughs> wow, that is a stretch. <laughs>
Well, there's some creative analogies, but I get it. You know, honestly, the idea of improvising makes it cooler than if Homer just wrote a piece of writing and then just read and chanted and sang the same thing over and over again. I mean, as a musician, it reminds me what uh, jazz musicians do or even bands in general. And, you know, uh, this is really going to sound nerdy, but every once in a while, I have some buddies that I've known from years ago. We all went to church at the same place, played music there, but many of them moved out of Memphis and We'll get together about once a year and, and do something like this. We'll go to a friend's house with our guitars, bring up some good old rock and roll music <laughs> that we like, and just improvise. And We know all the songs, but the specific variations and solos, that sort of thing, will be just the stuff that we make up on the spot. Yeah, and I think you know, there's kind of a little bit of that in what uh, Homer gave himself freedom to do. At least Perry seemed to think... Uh, that's exactly kind of what he was doing. If exactly kind of is a thing you can say. Exactly kind of. It's mm. that's how everything to me in the ancient world. When you read it, it always sounds like they're trying to say something <laughs> like that. Uh, the Odyssey could be totally new for each new audience, but you know what do we know? It's a long time ago. But back to the original question uh, that you asked. For most of our purposes. None of that stuff matters. The translation doesn't matter. If Homer lived or didn't live, if he was a male, if he could see, if he couldn't, if he wrote with letters, if he memorized the text, if it was a fixed text, if it was an improvised performance, all of those things are kind of interesting, but they're not the reason we love the stories and they're not the reason we teach them to ninth graders, at least we teach them to ninth graders around here. People learn them at every level all over the world what we love about it and why you can teach it to children and to adults and to scholars is that we have this Homeric universe. It's fantastical. It's this fantastical story. It's a hyperbolic creation. And this hyperbolic creation has magnified our human experience. And we can find it as children and then again as adults and then again as we grow older. And Homer has given us a new way to conceptualize our world, a way to express and feel about events that are controllable, but sometimes uncontrollable, the things that change and plague our lives. Every once in a while, someone shows up in the world that can produce this, a new space, a new universe. Sometimes, you know, we think of guys like Tolkien as doing this when he created Middle Earth, or J.K. Rowling did it with Harry Potter, and C.S. Lewis did it with Narnia, and George Lucas, who I've referenced twice now, did it with Star Wars. Each of these artists conceptualized entirely new and different universes, and when we get into their world and spend time in their world, we can inhabit that universe. And by inhabiting the universe of Harry Potter or Narnia or Star Wars, this helps us understand our world better. That, I mean, that's what fantasy is all about. So Homer was the first that really did something like this to this scale. That's not to say that there aren't older legends and stories that predate them, because there are. But they don't exist that we know of in any full-length, single-unit form that has lasted and influenced so many large parts of the world the way that Homer's have. In that sense, you know, they really stand alone, and that is a feat. But beyond just creating this universe as a first, 
Homer defined reality, and that's different. So he created this universe, but he also he defined the real world for a large number of people, and he did that for centuries, and that's actually a different thing. And in some sense, maybe he is still defining reality for a lot of us. And I don't know that Tolkien or Rowling or Lucas can say that they've done that. The Greeks for hundreds of years were able to understand their reality, their principles, their morals, their worldview through their understanding of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Those books helped people answer basic questions, like the most basic question, how do I conduct myself in the world? So let's look at these first lines again, and then we'll be able to kind of flesh out what we mean by that. Sing to me of the man, muse, the man of twists and turns, driven time and again off course, once he had plundered the hollow heights of Troy. So, Christy, is Homer telling us his entire story in the first lines like you always say authors do? Yes, of course he is. He's the first, first of all. But I do want to point out that Homer does not take credit for his story. I think that's interesting. He's going to say it was given to him, sung to him, by a muse. That's interesting. And although I don't know for sure, I think it's kind of Jungian. Oh, my. To, to speak with, uh, uh, in your lingo, so to speak. That's your cup of tea. Well, he's basically saying uh, it's not that he made up the story, but he found the story, or, or the story found him. The muse is the originator, uh, the idea being that the story existed before him and Kind of some kind of larger context, and that there is something else greater than than he is. And of course, all religious traditions speak to this reality. But since you reference Young, so does psychology. <laughs> uh, there's something greater, and that is his starting point in the story. Exactly, and that brings us to why we love Odysseus. The next phrase: He was a man of twists and turns. You know, James Joyce, who wrote that incredibly complicated masterpiece that I'm scared to try to read, Ulysses, was asked why he wrote his masterpiece about Odysseus. Ulysses is the Roman way to say Odysseus. And he famously responded that it was because Odysseus is the only complete man in literature. Odysseus, as we're going to see, is a different kind of hero. And the Iliad, which is the book that came first, we see Achilles, and of course, Achilles is a hero. He's a demigod. He's perfect. He's like a Marvel person. He's totally beautiful, totally powerful, totally, I'm not going to say perfect, but he's totally honest. He, he took, takes pride in that. He can be. What are you going to do? He never has to lie. He never has to back down. He's bigger and stronger and can overpower anyone. But that's not Odysseus. Odysseus is amazing for sure. But he isn't the absolute biggest. He had to rely on lies. He sacked cities for sure, but he also got sacked himself. He has twists and turns, and he has twists and turns for two reasons. On the one hand, the gods have agendas that have nothing to do with him, and but that affect his world. But also, he makes choices, and the choices that he makes steer him off course. You know, Odysseus really is a hero for sure. He definitely gets all the women. <laughs> of I mean, course. If you want to look at it that James way. James Bond-like. Very much. 
But he's the kind of hero uh, we as mere mortals might aspire to be. I mean, his life didn't turn out the way he wanted it, but he still wins at life. And actually, he gets to make choices that allow him to live the kind of life he ultimately figures out he even wants for himself. Exactly. And understanding what you want out of life is a big deal. Homer shows us what that might should be and how we can make that happen. I mean, Odysseus has a shot at immortality and turns it down for something even greater. In this Homeric universe, that is safely far, far away. It's full of monsters, goddesses, and magic. We can test drive some of the things we wish we could do in real life. In this magical place, we can test drive them and see what the consequences are for doing things like running your mouth when you really want to, but probably shouldn't. We can get some good ideas at how to get back at people when we're actually being exploited, ways that are smarter than just mouthing off at them. Maybe by watching Odysseus, we can get ideas about how to correct course in our own personal odyssey Figure out what success looks like in our mundane realities. At least that's been the idea. And yet, Christy, it is magical and otherworldly with characters that we don't know. I'll just be honest. As a person who doesn't know a lot about mythology, am I going to get confused the farther into this I read? I mean, so far, so good. But I'll have to admit I haven't finished reading the whole thing yet. Again, this is back to Homer's brilliance. The answer to that is no. Homer is going to build a pantheon of gods that is manageable and knowable. That's brilliant. There are a lot of polyistic faiths. We know this. And just like other polyistic faiths, there are hundreds of gods in the original Greek pantheon. But how do you wrap your brain around 600 gods or so with nymphs and furies and all these magical characters? Homer reduces it to just a few, the Olympians. And he's going to create a simple hierarchy we can understand. And he's going to personalize the gods so that we feel like we can know them. And as we read the story, we are introduced to them little by little. We learn who they are, what each values, how each of them operates. And of course, and most importantly, how to appease them and stay out of trouble. First, we're going to meet Zeus. And that has to be first because he's the chief the god of the sky, protector and father of all the other gods and humans. We're also going to learn an important principle uh, that's going to explain a lot about life, both to us and to the ancients. There are things that are in the hands of the gods, but there are also things that are in our control. We can control what we can control, but then there are times we can strive hard and still meet disaster. And sometimes We've offended the gods, and sometimes they just like us. Sometimes we're just victims of happenstance. Yes, exactly. And how do we account for that? That's where we start. Let's read. By now, all the survivors, all who had avoided headlong death, were safe at home, escaped the wars and waves. But one man alone, his heart set on his wife and his return, Calypso, the bewitching nymph, the lustrous goddess held him back deep in her arching caverns, craving him for a husband. But then, when the wheeling seasons brought the year around, that year spun out by the gods when he should reach his home, Ithaca, though not even there would he be free of trials, even among his loved ones. Then every god took pity, all except Poseidon. He raged on, seething against the great Odysseus, till he reached his native land. 
So we met Zeus, the god of the sky. Then we get to meet Poseidon. He's the god of the sea, Zeus's brother, but he is way more unpredictable and volatile, hence the behavior of the sea. The big three, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, god of the sky, god of the sea, god of the underworld, will meet all three in the Odyssey, and in some sense, this brings order to the universe. There are powers out there, things we can't see, but they determine our fates. But they're also arbiters of justice. There is a spiritual battlefield full of spirits and invisible forces, however you want to call them, energy forces, something larger and outside our own humanity that we can't see with our natural senses. There is a larger story going on in the world, larger than our story, but we also play a part. Sometimes we're just a speck in humanity, but other times we're not invisible, even to very large forces. Of course, as we think through this, although not many of us adopt Greek mythology as our spiritual worldview, <laughs> there's a lot there uh, that most of the world still accepts as truth, even even if you're a monotheist. Exactly. Uh, but back to the Greeks, we have the major big boys, uh, but there are other few that we're going to meet. We're going to meet Hermes pretty quickly, and we're going to quickly understand that his role is the role of a messenger. He's Zeus's son, but not by his wife, Hera. Zeus, we'll find out, is always getting into trouble with his wife because he has fidelity problems. But Hermes is one of his favorite, if not his favorite, and we will quickly learn he is in charge of messages. After we meet the men, we are slowly going to meet the women of Olympus. The first one here, probably my favorite or everyone's favorite, Athena. Athena is a virgin. She's not controlled by a man, ha. But she is a goddess of wisdom and war. That makes her awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know that she's everybody's. I mean, Aphrodite has some fans. Well, you're right. Aphrodite does have fans. But Aphrodite is a troublemaker. Aphrodite makes you fall madly in love with someone you probably shouldn't. Or you'll be sexually compelled to be attractive and... And, beha- and behave improperly at some point. <laughs> you know, in some circles, we would just call that low impulse control. Yes, but those would not be ancient Greek circles. Okay. They would say it's Aphrodite's fault. You are listening to her. I mean, that was Helen of Troy's problem. That started the whole thing. But back to Athena. You know, it seems uh, Athena seems that she likes Odysseus. Well, she does, and that's how Odysseus wins. Someone is watching over him, and he is sensitive to her leading. Athena is the goddess of wisdom, and Odysseus is attuned to this wisdom of the universe. She speaks to him, guides him, and most importantly, Athena enables Odysseus, and this is his main characteristic, to keep his cool. Odysseus, we will see with few exceptions, sometimes he has some, but he's led by wisdom. He's not led by impulse. He's not led by lust or uncontrollable rage. He has God-given wisdom. Seeing people as being visited by outside forces that inspire them one way or another 
is not a bad way to conceptualize or understand how people are influenced one way or another, even if you don't believe in gods and goddesses. Um, This is the understanding of the ancient Greek worldview. In the Homeric universe, men and women are led. They're led by a god or a goddess for the most part for a variety of of different reasons and different ways. We mentioned that Helen and Troy, she's attuned to Aphrodite, the goddess of sexual love. That's who gives her direction. But Odysseus is attuned and sensitive to Athena. Athena takes credit not for Odysseus' strength, although he is strong, not with his ability with a bow and arrow, which she's pretty good at. She takes credit for his wisdom. The Odyssey is a story of this collaboration. There are things that we can't control. There are things that we can. And if we do control the things that we can, a goddess or the universe or something or some force outside of us will intervene on our behalf with grace and kindness in one way or another. It's a way to organize your thinking about what makes the universe work the way that it does. And it's an old way to think of the universe and how it works. Let's quote Zeus here. Again, we're going to use Fagel's translation as he explains the responsibility of humans. And this is at the point in the story. This is right after what you just read on that first page. Poseidon is out of town. He's in Ethiopia getting, you know, sacrifices by the hundreds. Athena wants to take advantage that he's away. So she's going to make a play to save Odysseus's life. Um, Everybody's going to be gathered in the hall. But before she asks for her father to intervene on um, Odysseus's uh, behalf, we're going to hear Zeus explain the philosophy of Greeks about how things work in the world. But the other gods at home in Olympian Zeus's halls met for full assembly there, and among them now, the father of men and gods was first to speak, sorely troubled, remembering Hanson Agathus, the man Agamemnon's son, renowned Orestes killed. Recalling Agathus, Zeus harangued the immortal powers. Ah, how shameless the way these mortals blame the gods. From us alone, they say, come all their miseries. Yes, but by themselves with their own reckless ways, compound their pains beyond their proper share. Look at Igathus now. Above and beyond his share, he stole Atreides' wife. He murdered the warlord coming home from Troy, although he knew it meant his own total ruin. Far in advance, we told him so ourselves, dispatching the guide, the giant killer Hermes. Don't murder the man, he said. Don't court his wife. Beware, revenge will come from Orestes, Agamemnon's son. That day he comes of age and longs for his native land. So Hermes warned, with all the good will in the world, but would Agathus's heart give him away? Now he pays the price, all at a single stroke. And now, after that lecture on the role of men versus the role of gods, we'll hear what Athena has to say back to her father as she demonstrates the roles that the gods play in the destinies of men. And sparkling-eyed Athena drove the matter home. Father, son of Cronus, our high and mighty king, surely he goes down to a death he earned in full. Let them all die, so all who do such things. But my heart breaks for Odysseus, that seasoned veteran, cursed by fate so long, far from his loved ones, still he suffers torments off on a wave-washed island rising at the center of the seas. 
a dark wooded island, and there a goddess makes her home, a daughter of Atlas, wicked Titan, who sounds the deep in all its depths, whose shoulders lift on high the colossal pillars thrusting earth and sky apart. Atlas's daughter it is who holds Odysseus as captive, luckless man, despite his tears, forever trying to spellbind his heart with suave, seductive words and wipe all thought of Ithaca from his mind. But he, straining for so no more than a glimpse of hearth smoke drifting up from his own land, Odysseus longs to die. Olympian Zeus, have you no care for him in your lofty heart? Did he never win your favor with sacrifices burned beside the ships on the broad plain of Troy? Why, Zeus, why so dead set against Odysseus? And there we have our narrative hook. The gods will intervene in the destiny of this man. Calypso has been holding Odysseus hostage. Hermes is going to be sent with a message from the gods to force Calypso to release Odysseus. And at the same time, Athena will visit Telemachus, Odysseus's son, back in his homeland, Ithaca. Telemachus was just a newborn when Odysseus left, but now he's 20 years old. For 10 years, Odysseus fought in Troy. Then after angering Poseidon, he spent the next 10 years wandering lost at sea. Telemachus has been left at home to be raised by his mom and a man named Mentor. Guess where that word came Hmm. from? (laughs) Anyway, there's trouble in Ithaca. We'll find that out next episode. But more importantly than the trouble in Ithaca, it's time for Telemachus to make his own journey to get out into the world on his own. We're going to see that the Odyssey is really kind of divided into three parts. The first four books are about Telemachus's journey to visit all of his dad's world buddies. The second part is Odysseus wandering around in the magical seas. And the third part is what he finds when he finally gets home to Ithaca. He'll find his beautiful and faithful wife, but he'll also see what's waiting for him at his palace estate. The first part is what we're going to tackle next episode and watch this coming-of-age story, Boy to Man. After that, we'll see about the sea trials, and then we'll discuss the famous finale. Well, sounds like we have a plan. (laughs) It's somewhat of a plan. The Iliad is a pretty straightforward narrative. You know, it's a linear timeline, and it has a kind of tragic ending. The Odyssey is written in circles. I mean, it's winding with endless setbacks, but... It has a happy ending. I think that's exactly the right way to look at it. They're both charming and enduring books, obviously, but for different reasons. You know, my book club recently just finished reading the latest take on the Iliad. Madeline Miller wrote uh, recently a novel called The Song of Achilles from the perspective of Patroclus that we really liked, but it was sad, too. If we ever analyze the Iliad, we'll have to get into the appeal of that book. There is one, but it's different than what appeals in the Odyssey. I think the ending of the Odyssey is definitely one of the factors that makes it appealing. Many of us know what it's like to offend the gods. We've experienced the wrath of Poseidon. We've maybe even been seduced by the lures of Aphrodite or Circe. Many of us have been jilted by suitors. We call those frenemies nowadays. (laughs) We can live vicariously under the steady, under-pressure, goddess-led hero Odysseus. And maybe we can be inspired to face down our monsters. And maybe we can even learn to listen for Othena. 
But mostly, we all want that heartwarming reunion after a long absence with our loved ones in our home. We want to rest in the prophecy that the old Greek prophet Tiresias will give Odysseus during his visit to the underworld. And let me quote Tiresias, that when our time comes, death will steal upon us a gentle, painless death. Far from the seas, it comes to take you down, born down with your years in ripe old age with all your people there and blessed peace around you. Wow, what a blessing. (laughs) (laughs) A nice ending. It is. Well, thanks for being with us today as we opened up one of the greatest uh, pieces of literature in all of world history. Uh, We ask that you uh, check us out on our social media, you know, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Uh, Did I leave anything out? I don't know. Leave us a review. Yeah, leave us a review. Share an episode with a friend. And check out our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. Again, thanks for being with us. Peace out. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 